Mental imagery, what could be more cognitive than that? Our ability to visualize something when it isn't physically in front of us, but when we have to think about it in its absence. Like uh, what is darker, a Christmas tree or frozen broccoli? Or what shape are Mickey Mouse's ears? Uh, when you ask people that question, they kind of look into space, they report having a mental picture, they have an experience that's like kind of looking at the mental picture and reading off the, uh, the necessary information. Mental imagery plays a role in a lot of our psychological life. Uh, many artists will uh, visualize, say, a scene in a novel or an arrangement uh, in a painting or a sculpture before they begin. Many scientists claim to have an insight where they see the answer to a problem in an image before they work out the details. Famously, uh, Albert Einstein, when he tried to imagine what it would be like to be on a train looking back at the hands of a clock as the train receded at the speed of light, would the hands freeze in place? Or what would happen in a, an elevator if someone cut the cable and then you tried to drop a penny? You would simulate weightlessness, leading to the connection between uh, motion and gravitation. But what is a mental image? Uh, not for the last time, I got caught up when I was in graduate school in a uh, raging controversy called the uh, imagery debate. And this was a debate over the format of mental imagery. Now, everyone reports the experience of a mental picture, and that's the way we describe it in English. But of course, there isn't a real picture in the brain. It isn't as if there's a little man sitting in a theater who's looking at a screen. The behaviorists were right about this. How do we make sense of what's going on in people's heads when they say they have a mental picture? The easiest way to make sense of it is to use the concept from computer science of an image file. Basically, an array of pixels, as we would now call them. And my graduate advisor, Stephen Koslin, came up with what at the time was a revolutionary theory that images were like image files in a computer kind of like a JPEG or a GIF or an IMG file, not compressed. The reason that it was radical was the computers at the time had virtually no graphic capability. And this was a, a kind of an exotic concept. Only the most uh, expensive supercomputers, which no one even had experience with, actually could do graphics. Computers at the time was line-by-line -line instructions in a kind of language format, and that's the way cognitive psychologists tend to think of mental life uh, in that era, in the, in the 1970s. Now, it might seem obvious that images are more like pictures than they are like uh, descriptions, like uh, whether in English or even in a more abstract logical language. But a number of psychologists and philosophers have pointed out that the fact that we say that we are it feels like seeing a picture, doesn't really mean that an image is like a picture. And when you actually probe the experience of mental imagery, there are a lot of ways in which an image is more like a description than like a picture. If you're imagining a tiger, okay, go ahead, count the stripes. People sometimes say, well, wait, I, I know the tiger has stripes, but I'm not really seeing them clearly enough to be able to count them in, in my image. Or if you ask people to recall something uh, from memory that they may have seen thousands of times, like a penny, and image it and draw it, suddenly they find themselves paralyzed. They know that there's a picture of a, of a president or a queen, but they might draw it facing the wrong way. They might have the wrong patriotic slogan. They might have the wrong uh, inscription below it. 
Not the kind of error that you would imagine from a faded or a torn or a degraded photograph or a corrupted image file on a computer, but something more like what you would have if you had a description, like a coin has got a sovereign on it and a patriotic slogan and the uh, denomination of its, uh, its value, and that those descriptions get scrambled in, in the brain. So Steve Coslin uh, took the side that, that there really is something image-like about mental images, although they are generated from a more abstract, descriptive, logical, uh, long-term memory base. And one of the ways that he showed it was to show that people could scan their mental images. When they closed their eyes and, say, imagined a map, if they had to picture one of the locations on the map, and then another one, the farther apart they were in space, the longer it took people to imagine one and then the other, as if they really were scanning a mental picture. Well, where I came in was figuring out how we uh, incorporate the third dimension into the thinking about imagery, because after all, we don't live in, uh, in flatland. You can mentally rotate an object in three dimensions, not just like a picture, and we do that all the time when we imagine how furniture will fit into a room, how luggage will fit into the trunk of a car, if you take organic chemistry, uh, and so on. Well, a natural way of thinking about three-dimensional images would say, well, okay, if an image of a 2D shape is like a bunch of pixels arranged in two dimensions, well, then that must mean that when we imagine something in 3D, it's a three-dimensional representation, what are sometimes called voxels, voxel elements, that is, itty-bitty cubes arranged in three dimensions. But when uh, Steve Costland handed me this problem as a grad student, I realized that something that doesn't make sense about that. Because when you uh, imagine something, you always imagine it in perspective from a vantage point. So for example, let's say I ask you to imagine standing between a pair of railroad tracks and looking along them. Well, do they seem to converge toward a vanishing point? And the answer is everyone says, yeah, they do. Now, that is not true of real railroad tracks. And if it did, the, the train would derail. It's only true of the perspective view, the projection. But again, the behaviorists were right about that. There's not a little man in the head looking at railroad tracks. If our image has perspective, it can't be that our mental representation of a 3D object is a bunch of little cubes arranged in a, uh, the equivalent of a 3D space. Uh, I fretted about how to make sense of this for a long time until I came across an idea from a brilliant theoretical neuroscientist, a computer scientist, artificial intelligence researcher named David Marr, considered to be one of the greats in the history of cognitive neuroscience and artificial intelligence, died tragically of leukemia in his 30s in 1980. David Marr had really the first overall theory of vision. What happens when you see from the pattern of light and dark and color on the retina in the back of your eye, all the way up to a cognitive awareness of what you're looking at, whose face it is, what kind of object it is. And Marr proposed that partway through that stream of information processing, from the eyeballs uh, upward, there is a representation that he called a two-and-a-half-dimensional sketch. Two-and-a-half dimensions? What does that mean? Well, what it means is there three dimensions are represented. The world isn't flat. You know when something is farther away and something is uh, closer. But the third dimension is not represented in this in information format the way the other two dimensions are 
namely left to right and up and down. Left to right and up and down are represented from the vantage point of a perceiver in terms of a visual angle. And the third dimension is measured by distance along a line of sight. So the information is there that uh, we don't think the world is a pancake, uh, but it isn't a perfectly uh, isotropic 3D representation either. And our memory of a scene, like railroad tracks, will preserve the way the laws of optics and projection made it appear to us at the time.